One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the most intriguing sources about the fall of Anne Boleyn is a poem that was written in June 1536 by Lancelot de Carle, secretary to the French ambassador in London, Antoine de Castelnau, Bishop of Tarbes. It tells us unique information about Anne Boleyn's fall, and it exists in multiple copies with different titles, but it's most commonly known as L'Histoire de la Mort d'Anne Boleyn, Reine d'Angleterre which one can translate as the story of the death of Anne Boleyn, Queen of England. Although, as my guest has explained, histoire can mean both story and history, or even biography in French. Up until now, it has only been available in an edition that was printed in 1971, but in its original, rather difficult 16th century French. But my guest, Professor Joanne Delaniva, Professor of Romance Languages and Literatures at the University of Notre Dame in the US, has translated it and is publishing it in a scholarly edition, which is very exciting news for anyone who wants to know about the fall of Anne Boleyn. So I have spoken to her about translating this crucial source and what she learned that we didn't know before. But before that... Let's hear a little bit of her translation. Despite this, whoever wishes to look upon her with great pity could not keep from grieving, and just as her steadfast heart grew strong, so too did grow weaker. The hearts of those in attendance who could not hold back their tears, which she could so well contain. When the queen herself had lowered her white collar and took off her hood, so as not to impede the blow, she proceeded to cast herself humbly on her knees, while pronouncing these utterance several times. Christ, I beg you to receive my spirit. Oh, what great pity! One of the gentle women, endlessly pouring forth continuous tears, came forward to perform the service of her last and piteous office, and veiled her face with linen. Then the officer, who was assuredly distraught and troubled by the execution, forcing himself to fulfil his duty, aimed the final blow of the sword upon her neck, which quickly severed it. The head and body were taken by her ladies, whom you would have thought to be almost bereft of their souls. Professor Delaniva, I am immensely excited to be talking to you about your translation of the story of the death of Anne Boleyn, we'll call it for now, <laughs> because this is such an important source for this period. And I have been thinking for ages that somebody needed to do this and to translate this incredibly important French source into English. And you have done it. 
So perhaps you could start by introducing us to the poem and then to Lancelot de Carle, who wrote it. Okay. Well, let me start actually with Lancelot de Carle. He was the secretary to the French ambassador, the resident ambassador in London, whose name was Antoine de Castelnau at the time of Anne Boleyn's execution. He arrived probably in London in 1535 or so. The ambassador was, of course, chosen from the bishops of the time. Francis I would generally choose bishops to be his resident ambassador, and he was the Bishop of Tau. But the secretary to the French ambassador would usually also be a cleric, and Lancelot de Caux was, in fact, a cleric who had taken minor orders, which would be the first step towards priesthood. But often that was taken by scholars and poets with no intention of ever becoming a priest, as it turns out that Carl would become a priest and, in fact, later Bishop of Riez in France in 1550. But at this point, he was still a very young cleric. We don't know much about his early life. We don't know the date of birth. Most scholars think it's around 1510, give or take a couple of years. But he was certainly affiliated with the court of Francis I by about 1534-35. And he clearly took an early interest in poetry because just about this time in 1535, he becomes involved in a literary competition that was launched by the premier French poet of the time, whose name was Clément Marot. And it was a competition writing what's called Blason. And Blason are poems that focus on a particular part of the female anatomy. Many of these are quite bawdy, as you can imagine, but our friend Lancelot was a little bit more restrained, and he wrote about the knee of the lady and her spirit as well. So his is quite restrained, not nearly so bawdy as some of the others. But anyway, he clearly fancied himself to be a poet and wanted to be around poetic circles. He was known to also have been a very good dancer at the court of Francis I. A later historian, Ronton, talks about that. So he comes to London at this time, and it's just at the right moment, actually, for him to talk about the death of Anne Boleyn. He's absolutely astounded by what it is that he sees. The poem itself bears the date of June the 2nd, 1536, so it's written within two weeks of her demise. And that is, I think, its most prominent feature, its immediacy. It's not filtered through the lens of history. What you have there are the raw facts about these events, or as he perceives them. And it's clearly a very emotional subject for him. The poem itself is a dispatch, but it's also a literary artifact as well. And it has 1,320 verses that appear in one form or another in all the manuscripts that I've consulted, not counting some extra verses that appear in other manuscripts. It's a very simple rhyme that he uses. It's called decasyllabic rhyming couplets. So it's 10 syllables for each verse. And there are couplets, so it's A, A, B, B, C, C, etc. It was a very common verse form at the time, very popular, and fairly easy to write, not as complicated as a sonnet, let's say. We don't know to whom this poem was addressed. It's clearly not Francis I himself, because if it had been Francis, he probably would have referred to the recipient as sire or roi or prince, which is the way Marot, when he wrote to Francis I, would address him. But he says he calls this person Monseigneur. And so it's probably some high-level person in the diplomatic corps in France. It could be Anne de Montmorency, it could be the Cardinal of Lorraine, Cardinal de Tournon, but clearly someone in that caliber there. 
And he expects the person that he's writing to to have remembered Anne from the time when she lived in France. When she came to France with Mary, Queen of France, and stayed on to work with Claude de France, Francis I's wife. That's really interesting. And what's the sort of topic that it covers? I mean, some people have translated it as the life and death of Anne Boleyn. And I know that you have come across a range of different manuscripts that you've been working from and indeed printed versions, and they have different titles. But how much is it focusing on her life and how much on her death? It's mostly about her death because he wants to talk about what it is that he has himself witnessed. Now, he does say, I'm going to write about some of the things that people have shared with me before I came here. And then I'll write about the things that I actually see. And so the balance is definitely towards what he has witnessed since he has come to English shores. But he certainly does give her backstory. As I say, he mentions the fact that she lived in France with Claude de France. And he gives a lot of scenarios that kind of lead up to the execution. For example, he talks about the great matter. He doesn't frame it that way. He doesn't actually say that. Really what he's interested in is the human toll that it takes. He doesn't talk about the theological arguments of why Henry might have wanted to break with Rome. What he's interested in is how this impacted Catherine and how it impacted their daughter Mary. He spends about a hundred lines talking about Mary throughout the poem and clearly she was someone of interest to him and probably to the French embassy in general and the French court in general. So I think the balance, though, is mostly with what it is that he has witnessed himself. And as such, he's a very important source for us in thinking about Anne's death and this great and thorny and perennially provoking question of why Anne had to die. What does he offer that is important particularly? Well, I think if you talk about it in journalistic terms, he delivers a scoop which is how exactly did the story of Anne Boleyn's adultery break? And that's his main claim to fame here because he frames this as a conversation or an argument that takes place between a close counselor of the king and that counselor's sister, whom he would like to admonish for her bad behavior. And so the sister responds with, well, if you think I'm behaving badly, basically you should see what's going on with the queen. And she makes the accusation that Anne has been sleeping with her brother, George, and that Mark Smeaton would know all about it. So go talk to Mark and he'll tell you even more than I can claim. Now, of course, there are other sources that talk about the fact that these accusations may have arisen from her inner circle. But the thing that's distinctive about Carl is that he dramatizes this moment. He gives a dialogue of this conversation between the brother and sister, which has fatal consequences, of course. And before we go on to think a bit more about this, tell me about your experience of working with this. Because... I mean, I've worked on 16th century French documents, so I know the challenge, but you're also working from a poem and you're translating it into modern English. How was it doing that? And what sort of principles did you employ in translating it? 
Well, it was definitely a challenge. I had never really translated anything like this before. I had done bits and pieces of translation as part of literary studies where I needed to basically tell what the story is behind a text, but never to try to capture something like this in a literary form as well. But I chose to do it in a sense for sense translation rather than obviously not a literal or word-for-word translation and I wanted to do it in free verse so I have no set meter or no set rhyme so it doesn't actually read quite like a poem but I wanted to do that because it kept closer to the actual words and the meaning that Carl had actually used. You know, I'm an experienced reader of 16th century poetry. That's my specialty. So I was familiar with some of the conventions of poetry, the inversions that you're likely to encounter. I was familiar with the change in language because there are many words that have changed meaning just as there are from Middle English to Modern English. And I was familiar with some of the resources that I could use to pinpoint the meanings of words that seemed a little hazy to me. There are certain specialized dictionaries and so forth. So that's how I went about doing it. It was quite a challenge and actually it was really a lot of fun. And I loved bouncing off different ideas about how to translate certain concepts. Some of my colleagues, my husband, whoever <laughs> you know, came into the room, I would uh, say, well, what do you think about this? <laughs> And you were working not just from one script, because this exists in multiple manuscripts and printed versions. I mean, up until I discovered your work, I knew, I think, of 13. But is it 16 different versions that you have? What was it like to work from them? And did you find many instances where there were meaningful variations between the versions that you had to juggle? So I chose as my copy text a manuscript that really had not been studied much and that's the one that's surprisingly it's in the British Library and I chose it because it was just a lovely object in its own right. It was really quite richly produced. It's quite distinct from any of the other manuscripts. This is done on vellum or parchment. It's an italic script. It has gold leaf edges and gold illumination on the first folio. So it's clearly very carefully done. And for someone with some wealth, probably commissioned it. It is a text that probably lived in France for quite some time before it came over to England much, much later. So that's the copy text that I used. And that one does have a few extra variants here and there, most notably at the very end where Carl says, and I really hope and pray that these five men and this queen find mercy with God. So that's sort of a nice angle to have at the end. It's a nice ending to put in. It gives you an idea of what his orientation really had been all along. But surprisingly, most of the versions are quite similar. There are often a few scribal interventions or sometimes errors. The printed version of 1545 is very poorly produced and has a lot of errors in that. But what was fun too about looking at all of these different manuscripts, because I made it a point to try to actually go to the libraries and see all of these different manuscripts. What was fun was looking at some readers' engagements with these manuscripts, the marginalia that appear on some of them. The manuscript that lives in Bordeaux, which used to be part of religious house, the Discaus Carmelites, has a lot of marginalia by somebody who is clearly interested in religious matters. So anytime religious imagery appears in the text, there's a little cross or a manicule pointing that information out. 
And we can talk a little bit more about one text that is quite different, and that has about 15 extra lines. That lives in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected... And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. So this is very interesting that we've had a version of this, 1,320 lines, and in the Bibliothèque Nationale version, you're saying there are extra lines we didn't know of. Tell us about those and what's their import? Well, I was quite astounded when I found those lines because I was working from the manuscript that I had already seen that were parts of the Oscali edition that's very well known and really quite well done. And as I was cross-checking when I saw this manuscript, which is number 10194 in Paris, I came across a set of lines that simply did not exist anywhere else. And I thought, well, that's odd. And then I kept on reading a little further. And there was another set of seven lines that didn't appear anywhere else. And so it was really quite astounding. The unfortunate thing about all of this was that 10194 is notoriously sloppy in its writing. Now, I'm not a specialist in paleography. I have a little bit of difficulty anyway reading this 16th century handwriting, but this was atrocious, and that could be the reason why Oscali didn't include them. It was incredibly difficult to read. 
So I kind of worked it out. I got a digital copy of it and I spent a whole weekend just puzzling it out saying, okay, well that letter looks like that letter somewhere else and putting it all together. Knowing that it's a poem and it has rhyme does help a little bit because you know in advance it's going to be a certain number of syllables for that line. And once you get the rhyme word, you know it's going to have to rhyme. But it was a definite puzzle. So yes, it was astounding to see those verses. That's so fascinating. And I suppose we should think about what those verses contain and if there's any reason why they're in one and why they're not in others. I think that some of the verses are comparable to other verses that are found in different manuscripts and why they're there and not in others, I'm not quite sure. But there are four verses in particular that read in the English translation. He's describing the moment of Anne's execution and how the witnesses to her execution are reacting to that. And he says that everyone, on the basis of her mightily steady end, judges her life to have been prudent and believes that they have committed a great offense in having thought so ill of her. And those lines are quite distinctive from anything else that he's written because they are the most explicit with regard to Carl's depiction of her guilt or innocence. And clearly by saying that she has been prudent, which he had said specifically earlier on that he doubted that she was prudent because she wasn't following the path of the prudent mistress Claude de France. Here he's saying her life had been prudent. And prudence is an important virtue. According to Thomas Aquinas, it's the virtue that you need for holding the passions and the appetites in check. So if you know that, if you know your Aquinas, and clearly he as a cleric would have, and many people at the time would have, that's a really loaded expression right there. And it would mean that he is suggesting that not only had she repented of anything, but it's more than that. She probably was not guilty and no one should ever have thought her to be guilty. And that's pretty astounding. It's so exciting because it means that de Carl is tying his colours to the mast. We can see what he thinks and it's crucial that we can understand the meaning of the language that he's using in order to do that. And also because actually Descartes, as you well know, has often been used or particularly been used recently by my dear friend George Bernard to suggest that actually this is an indication of Anne's guilt and that the Descartes poem really testifies to that. But actually what you're saying is something quite different. Right. And it's understandable that other people might not have come to that conclusion so easily if they don't have access to these extra verses. So I do think that these verses are important for historians to consider in the overall picture. I mean, certainly early in the poem, Carl is not depicting Anne in a favorable light. He says all kinds of nasty things about her. He says that she was full of malice and evil. I mean, that's pretty damning. But then at a certain point it shifts and he becomes much more sympathetic. And generally people have thought, well, this is the moment, it's towards the middle of the poem, where she's already imprisoned and she turns her thoughts to God. That's what he says. And so it's because she realizes that her past has been bad, that she has not been living up to a good Christian standard, that she's repenting. That's why Carl is now sympathetic to her, because she's repentant and worthy of our mercy as well. 
But I think this changes that because it's more than she's simply saying she has repented. It's saying she was never guilty. Her life has been prudent. And we have thought ill of her and we have done her a great offence. You also consider some of this in some of your work on the various titles, because some versions, you say, add the word tragedy to its title and another one calls it pitiable. And pitiable doesn't just mean that we should feel sorry for her in your understanding of it, does it? That's right. One thing we should know is that there is no uniform title to this poem. So all the titles that we have on the different manuscripts were probably assigned to it by the scribes. So we have an array of responses of early readers to the poem, and many of them do call it tragic. Many of them do mention pity. And so clearly many early readers thought there was a certain sympathy here. But it is, as I said, kind of tricky because Carl early on is very harsh towards her, but then the tone does shift and he starts using the word pity multiple times. And pity is, as you say, is not just sympathy, but it was a word that was used in classical times all the way through the Renaissance to imply that this person has undeserved suffering. And that's an important point too. So I think that current had already been in the poem and it still exists in all the versions that we know of the poem, but it's a much more subtle one than saying her life had been prudent. That's much more explicit. So I can see, again, people kind of not noticing all these uses of the word pity, or also not noticing, for instance, the way Carl frames the executions in ways that remind us of Christ's crucifixion. So if he's making that kind of parallel with them, you would think, okay, well, this is an undeserved suffering. This is someone who's being executed undeservedly. Not just Anne, but also the men too. He uses that kind of imagery. I could see that kind of reading being missed or not being emphasized very much because it's much more subtle. When we get to those extra verses, I think there's no subtlety there at all. It's much more direct. That's fascinating because that turns on its head many of the ways that we've read some of the central material. As you said at the beginning, one of the crucial things about this source is it gives us an idea of how Anne might have been charged, as it were, with these offences. First of all, in gossip that then travels to the king and there's this transmission path that's given there, this brother and sister at court who direct attention to Anne's behaviour and then it's reported to the king. And there are some very important lines that are corroborated elsewhere, but there are also lines that aren't corroborated, for example, saying that Henry orders an investigation if it turns out not to be true, it will be on pain of death of those who are bringing it to him. But the information that he's been given is stuff about Anne's behaviour that makes her look guilty. But what you're saying suggests that's just the weight of the testimony against her, but it's not necessarily the truth, and that actually Dickal is not claiming it to be the truth. I think that's right, yes. I think he wants to tell a story about how this came about, because it's unfathomable. It's unprecedented. He says that in the very first line, you know, these unprecedented events that have taken place. So how do I explain that? And he wants to give the stories behind all of this. And you're right. When the counselor goes back to the king and tells his version of the story, 
the accusations are actually multiplied. It's not just incest with her brother, but other men as well. In fact, he says, so many that I can't even tally how many there are. And so something has happened there between the sister's telling of the story and the brother's telling of the story. Maybe the brother did do an investigation because she invited him to talk to Mark. It's possible that that happened. But clearly he has overcome his concern about going to the king and saying, oh my gosh, how do I ever tell this volatile king that all of this is happening behind his back? He's overcome that. And there is a certain eagerness, it seems, in wanting to tell this story. So there may be a little hint there, if we read between the lines, that those charges were exaggerated. It's very possible. But again, it's not explicit. Yes, if you're going to go and tell a tale like that, it's got to be so bad that you've got a good reason for saying it, I suppose. But also there's actually something in the tone of it when it talks about the language of Anne inciting these men. To quote your translation, you say, Norris and Mark cannot deny to you that they have often spent with her many a night alone without having to pursue her, for she herself incited them to this and with gifts and welcoming gestures invited them in. And that language is replicated in the indictment against her. Yes. He must have somehow had access to that language. I don't know exactly how, but he must have had that language because it's too close to be coincidence, it seems to be. The other thing that you've done in your analysis of this, which is quite brilliant, is that you have unearthed the fact that up until now there's been some discussion about who wrote this and you have nailed this question and in so doing you've had to chase down several red herrings along the lines <laughs> of someone referred to in some of the writing about this period as Crispin Dinmilherve. Can you tell us about this wonderful piece of detective work you've done? Yes, this is quite a mystery still, actually. One of the manuscripts that I looked at is one that now lives in Valenciennes in northern France. So basically, it would have been in the Low Countries in the 16th century. And the title that is given to that particular manuscript attributes the poem to someone named Antoine de Crespin, Escuyer, so squire, the Seigneur de Mierne. So he's some kind of lower nobility. And it was quite a mystery. Is this a pseudonym that Carl takes on for his protection? Well, why there and why not elsewhere? It was a real mystery. And the name Caispin becomes widely attached to the poem by lots of historians, thanks to a 16th century writer, Emmanuel de Maeterin, who does a paraphrase of the poem, but a very selective paraphrase. He's extremely sympathetic to Anne, and he omits a lot of what Carl says, any of the nasty negative things about her earlier in the first half of the poem. And he also adds a few things that aren't in Carl. So it's a very different retelling of the story. So much so that scholars have sometimes been confused about whether or not Maeterlinck's paraphrase is actually something entirely different from Carl's poem. But if you actually look at the two, it's pretty clear that they are, in fact, the same. Now, the issue is, where did this name Antoine de Crespin come from? And it seems to me that it's unlikely to have been a name that was pulled out of a hat or a pseudonym assumed by Carl. Because in the course of my research, I came across 
a book-length study, and I think it actually was a dissertation by a, a scholar from the Netherlands who was doing completely unrelated research, studying civil court proceedings in the area of the Low Countries. And he gives this story about someone named Antoine de Caisbaud, Seigneur de Mian. And so there really was uh, Antoine de Caisbaud, Seigneur de Mian, who lived in the area not far from Valenciennes, where the manuscript eventually reappears, who was a member of the minor nobility and had a lawsuit going on around 1536. So he's not a phantom and he's not the actual author of the poem, but nobody knows why his name is attached to the poem. You know, it could be Maitreau himself maybe uh, attaching that name to it. So he might have wanted to not make it so clear that there was this other poem out there that portrays Anne in a slightly different way. It's just a total mystery, but it's very clear this person, although he might have existed, was clearly not a poet, not the poet of this poem anyway. Well, you're being very modest, but actually <laughs> this changes a lot of the scholarship about this. So there is often people who've written about the fall of Anne Boleyn, some people have taken this Anton de Crispin Seigneur de Milhern and his poem, not a poem by this point, coming into a prose version of Descartes' work, as an entirely separate source to Descartes. And then they can use the two to corroborate each other, or they can, out of a prose version of Descartes' poem, we get a version of Anne Boleyn's scaffold speech as if it has been delivered in prose, whereas actually what you have done by showing that actually this is a prose version of Descartes' poem, you're saying that there is no more authenticity or authority in this Milhern version. In fact, Milhern exists, but he's nothing to do with this. He's not at Anne Boleyn's execution. He's not in the crowd. And actually, we have to look back at Descartes. And that's an astounding piece of work. Well, I'm not the person who actually discovered that. It goes back to the 19th century, actually, where I think they were pretty sure that these were one and the same, but that Mitterrand changes things around so much that it would have been understandable for people to think that these were vastly different poems. So no, I don't want to take too much credit on that at all. <laughs> okay, well... I think you've done a very good job of demonstrating that. I will take credit for saying Antoine de Mian is a real person. Uh, <laughs> I will take credit for that. Absolutely. But who? <laughs> One crucial question that we must ask thinking about this, this is a key piece of reporting. As you said, it's a dispatch from the French embassy in London to Paris. It's reporting on this unprecedented execution of an anointed queen. And the factual reporting of a diplomat and the fictionalising of a poet, potentially, seem to pull in opposite directions. Why do you think Descartes has written this important piece of diplomatic correspondence in verse? That is a great question. And I think, as you say, you know, diplomatic dispatch ought to be just the facts, right? It ought to be something that is truthful. There is one handbook for diplomats that says that a doctor may lie to his patient, but the patient should never lie to the doctor. So must the subject always speak the truth to his prince. So the ambassador had to say the truth to his prince and pretty efficiently as well. But Carl clearly was not interested in simply writing a just-the-facts ma'am kind of version of the story. He wanted to write something that 
would have a greater audience. He says in the very beginning, you know, I trust you're not going to show this to anybody else, but we can't believe poets when they say things like that. Generally, that means, please show this to other people. Poetry would have been coded as something imaginative or fictional or false. There are even lies sometimes that poets tell in order to accommodate the rhyme. But he chose to do this because it was such an emotional experience for him. He says that he's shocked and saddened by these events and that in writing it, he wants to write it in verse because he thinks it's more appropriate and it would be beneficial to the reader, to the person who's receiving this, because it will make the story less troubling. Those were his words. So the idea being that something written in poetry is more pleasurable to read, or more palatable anyway, to read, even when the content is tragic. That's an idea that he actually uses elsewhere in some of his later works. He's talking about why he chose to write something else in poetry, and he says, I wanted to temper the severity of the pronouncements with the sweetness of meter. So clearly in his mind, poetry always has something sweet about it. It's always more pleasurable. It's always more palatable. And this was a tragic, tragic story that is extremely difficult for him to process and to write about and for other people to hear about. And so writing it in verse makes that possible, makes it a little bit easier to swallow, let's say. He doesn't want to just tell the story in a matter-of-fact way. He's interested in the human interest side of things. He talks about, as I said, Catherine and Mary and the ladies of Anne Boleyn and how they react to it, how Weston's family pleased to save his life. Now, we have other accounts that says, you know, there were people pleading for Weston's life, but those were the French diplomats. Well, Carl changes that so that it's his mother and his wife that make this plea to the king. And so he takes something that is political and diplomatic and changes it into something intensely personal and emotional. We see his grieving wife and his grieving mother is burdened by this. So verse poem allows him to explore emotions in a way that I think a dispassionate prosical wouldn't do. Plus, as I said, he fancied himself a poet at this point. He had just come back from France, where he had participated in this contest with all sorts of really important poets, and he thought, okay, I can do this. I'm one of those people, too. And again, he was very young and maybe a little arrogant on that front, but there are, I suppose, lots of different reasons, but I think it's the emotional connection that poetry can provide that makes things a little bit easier and more enjoyable to read, even though they're horrible tragedies. That's fascinating. So he's borrowing the emotional power of poetry, but not to make it more tragic, but to make it palatable. That he somehow is thinking, if I deliver it in a form that is normally associated with fiction, this terrible factual thing will somehow be able to be absorbed more because I've delivered it through that vehicle. I think it's a totally unique text. I am not aware of any diplomatic dispatch anywhere on any topic at any time that was written in verse form. So clearly he wanted to make this distinctive in some way. I think there was always an intention perhaps of publishing this and making it more widely available to the world in general. Yes, probably even then something about Anne Boleyn he thought might sell a copy or two. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. The extraordinary thing is that because it's in verse, 
is precisely the reason that people haven't believed it as a source over the years. But your research also looks at Henry VIII's reaction. Tell me about that. So we do have some diplomatic correspondence that dates from the following year, in 1537, that Henry VIII received a copy of this poem sent to him from France by his then ambassador, Stephen Gardner. And Henry is absolutely livid in this <laughs> response back to Gardner. He says he wants all the copies of this poem to be destroyed and its author punished. And he says that he knows who wrote it. He knows that it was somebody named Carl who served with the French ambassador, that he wrote it in the ambassador's residence. Kind of get that feeling that he felt betrayed that people who were using his property, uh, Bridewell, would actually write something like this about her. But he's clearly not reading this as something that is an indictment against Anne. That's obvious. He must think there's something about this poem he doesn't want to divulge to the rest of the world. Now, it's true, he doesn't look particularly good in this poem, and I think that's part of why he was livid, but I do think it probably was more than that, and I think it did have to do with these verses that show that she was executed unfairly and undeservedly, and that she had actually been a prudent woman. The reason I think so is that all of the diplomatic correspondence that refers to the copies that Henry received refer to it in ways that are reflected in the title of the French manuscript 10194, which is the one that has these extra verses in it. As I said, he attributes the poem to Carl. He knows that that's his name. He calls it a tragedy, and that's part of the title that's on 10194. And he refers to Carl as a proto-notary which was the honorific that was also attached to him in the title of this manuscript 10194. So I don't know this for a fact, but we do know that the book that Henry received was a printed book. There are many references to it being an actual printed book in his letters and in subsequent correspondence. They're talking about publishers should be punished and so forth. So there is a printed book dating from 1537. We've lost all trace of that book. There is no record of it ever having existed. But clearly, it's not a manuscript. I mean, all of these people can't be wrong. They're talking about published books. They know what they saw. Now, it could have been a pamphlet, something kind of ephemeral that might not endure, but it was printed. And we have no trace of anything that was printed before. So what I think what we have in 10194 is a handwritten version of that printed book that is now lost. So I think that also adds, I think, to the value of knowing about those extra verses is that I think it gives a little more evidence to the fact that there was an edition that was published before the 1545 edition that we now know. So it's not just that these extra verses exist in 10194, it's that this is likely to be the version that Henry VIII himself had seen. I think that's very likely. Judging from the way it was described in these letters, they coincide perfectly with the intitulation of this manuscript. I would like to continue to talk to you about this for many hours to come, but I should let you carry on with your day. The truth of the matter, though, is that no one can now talk about the fall of Anne Boleyn without talking about 101.94 and without talking about Professor Joanne Delaniva. Thank you so much for the work that you have done on this, which we will all eagerly await the publication of. 
So look out, everybody, for Duran de la Neva's The Story of the Death of Anne Boleyn, which hopefully will be out later this year. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. If you enjoyed this episode please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media and also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment thank you hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.